You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the first RSA Conference podcast of 2020. This is Britta Glade, and I am the Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. We're so excited to be in these last few weeks of preparing for RSA Conference 2020, which will be next month in San Francisco. The content that will be presented is in its first round of review right now with our program committee, who has carefully picked and curated tracks full of diverse experts from across the globe on a really rich variety of topics. And we're incredibly excited this year to bring two new tracks to our audience that are focused in and around the developer community. And we're joined today by two guests who are part of our program committee, who have been tirelessly working behind the scenes to pull together some really rich and informative content for the product security and the community open source tools track. Ed and Megan, please introduce yourselves to our listeners. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Ed Moyle. I'm a partner with Security Curve, and I'm very excited about two things. I'm excited about RSA. The first one I went to, I think, was 1997. Uh, I met my spouse there. I am just so thrilled to be able to give back to this venue that I believe in so much and have such a place in my heart for. And I'm also excited about open source tools. And I'm really excited that RSA is doing this. And and I think it's a great platform to let people know about some awesome security tools that people can just pick up and use for free today. Hi, everyone. This is Megan Sanford. I am the Director of Product Security for Rockwell Automation. So my interest in my career have included industrial control system security as well as critical infrastructure protection. And when Britta and Don Capelli actually came to the product security community and said, you know, we think that there's enough interest this year to have a dedicated track for product security, the community itself, we were very anxious and uh, we're excited for the opportunity because We've been alongside in the trenches with the IT security community for years now, and the space is maturing on its own, and we really feel that this is a great first year to kick off the conversation and kind of reach across the aisle and form a more holistic approach. So this was was an awesome opportunity, and again, thank you to to Britta as well as uh, Don Capelli, who was very instrumental in in kind of surfacing the conversation and, and making this happen for our community. Great. Thank you both for being here and, and, and Don in spirit with us. Actually, we did a podcast a couple podcasts ago, so our listeners can go and pull that up. Um, Don is the CISO at Rockwell and, and has been a longtime member of our program committee and really, yes, is a great advocate and voice for what's seen in the industry and, and what people are needing. So, so thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you more so for your overall commitment and involvement with RSA conference. Um, Megan, I'm going to direct the first question to you, please. Increasingly, we are seeing so much of the technology that's used to run businesses um, be developed and enhanced by people inside of companies. Beyond that, developers are building tools, security, productivity, enterprise tools, and they now have that requirement to make those tools secure and compliant with privacy regulations. We're seeing a lot more privacy in and around the conversations at RSA Conference. The demands have really become immense. Can you talk about the impact some of these demands are having on development teams? Sure. Thank you, Bretta. So, yeah, definitely. We're living in very exciting and dynamic times when it comes to, I'd say, the maturation of product security as a space unto itself, right? 
like IT security, it's all about the people, processes, and technologies that work together to develop the secure products. And yes, you know, you're seeing that demand grow and largely it's growing in reaction to the market, to what our customers are saying they want. And what they want is something very simple. They want to purchase products that have security built directly into them versus being something that's bolted on after the fact. In product security and within dev teams and the the programs as a whole, we largely refer to this concept as uh, pushing left, right? You'll hear folks say, we have a desire to push our secure development lifecycle processes to the left so that we are proactively designing security into the products. We're proactively testing the products prior to shipment. And then we're effectively working to monitor and manage that risk once the product is in the customer environment. Because um, I guess a you know fun fact would be that from a product security standpoint, the moment that that product ships and it's uh, living in the customer environment, you could say that every single day that the product exists in the customer environment, its risk increases over time. So you really want to do as much as you can on the front end as a as a supplier, as a vendor, to bake security in so that it's still benefiting your customer environment on the back end. With that, you're seeing, coupled with this, a rise of the desire for companies to comply with standards regulations. So I work in the automation space with industrial control systems. So the standard that we follow is IEC 62443. But you also see other industry verticals comply with other standards that are also very good uh, depending on the vertical that you're working in. It could be NIST or, or ISO or a handful of others, especially if you're working in the medical space, right? So by industry and companies demonstrating an interest in complying proactively to these standards and, again, designing the products with security in mind, you're seeing the industry send a clear signal to customers, to regulators, to governments, and and all the stakeholders, right, that there is a desire to behave responsibly. And so, again, I take this moment in time as an exciting one, as one that's important, and we are actively trying to grow and demonstrate maturity. Sure. So I'm going to poke at that a little bit, Megan. Um, we've always had content at RSA Conference in and around application security and DevOps, and, and have seen a lot of growth of interest in, in, in that space in the last couple of years. Can you give us a better understanding of this holistic approach to product security that you were talking about and where AppSec, DevOps, DevSecOps, you know, depending on what you call it, where those elements and those players fit into that holistic product security lens? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. So product security, Britta, is all of that, and it's a bit more. So product security is really the overarching umbrella program that defines the requirements, the adoption, the monitoring, as well as the reporting, right, on the back end for all the products, you know, a a company has purview over to to show that we're consistently providing secure and quality products to market. So Product security, think of it as more of everything that is involved with ensuring that AppSec, DevOps, SecDevOps, that it's all successful. I really view those as rails that are within the program, but the program itself is much more holistic. And again, if I were to 
you know, provide some examples here. In healthy product security programs, you see other direct tie-in with critical programs that may or may not be run directly under product security or not. They could be sister programs, but um, items like supply chain risk management, vulnerability handling and disclosure, uh, the integration and partnership with influencing the standards bodies for requirements, ICS threat intelligence, product certification, um, product security programs are pretty much as wide as you would like them to be in terms of scope and purview for the things that they're trying to bring to the table. Definitely. So, Ed, you and your focus on open source, I think, becomes a really interesting component of this conversation. You recently wrote a blog about the new open source track at RSA Conference, and you'd noted that much like commercial products, there's a life cycle. And what I hear Megan talking about is it's, it's the life cycle. It's the when are we building things in? How are you looking at things? Can you perhaps shed some light on the life cycle of open source tools and how what's happening in, in that world, how that's foundational to the way that we can perhaps practice security and, and our approaches in the product security realm. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Actually, it's a really good tie-in, I think, because, you know, one of the things that Megan brought up was this whole thing about, you know, shift left or, you know, push left, you know, this idea that we're moving toward the development focused side of, you know, basically enabling developers to make uh, product more secure, right? And one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is that if you look at the open source world and kind of how things have developed recently in terms of, you know, how enterprise product development happens, all of that is built on the backbone of open source. So, you know, you look at containers, right? Docker and Rocket, like these are open source tools. You look at things like orchestration and you see containers there, an open source tool. You look at things like service mesh, right? And you have, you know, tools like Envoy, things like continuous integration, continuous development, right? You have tools like Ansible, right? That are open source tools. So, you know, this whole idea of community, of life cycle around, uh, you know, the open source tool itself, it kind of plays out in two ways. From one point of view, anytime you start to see a community coalesce in terms of the life cycle of, of the tool, um, and you start to see very rapid fire kind of adoption from the user community and developers and, and so forth, that very much ties into how we practice security. But also from the other side, right? Uh, from the other side of it, you also have the life cycle playing a role. So in my blog, I had talked about the way that open source projects germinate and get started. So a lot of times, you know, you have somebody who authors an open source tool because it happens to scratch a particular itch that they have in terms of, you know, whether it's security functionality that they need to develop or whether it's, um, you know, something that they need to do to help them with operations or help them with uh, development of a product that they might be working on. You know, they come up with a tool and put it out there for the community. Um, but, you know, it tends to go from one small little project and, and builds a community around it. And, you know, that community unlocks resources until at the end of the day, you know, you have something like Apache, which has, you know, one and a half million lines of code, you know, tremendously complicated project, you know, and users all over the world. But really what enables that is that underlying community. So I think being able to kind of tie that community together through, you know, using RSA as kind of a a nexus point around which that community can coalesce and folks can interact, you know, I think it's just so tremendously exciting. And I think it's directly spot on relevant to what Megan was talking about in terms of how do we make our overall product security better. 
Indeed, and two, you're scratching the itch. We've seen more and more scratching going on in the last couple years of submissions coming through RSA Conference, and, and that was that we, we felt like we reached a tipping point, if you will, this year in hearing the developers and that voice that really feels challenged with how to best use, maintain, test, certify the security of this open source code that's being created on a, on a small level and, and on a larger level. So can you perhaps explain for our listeners some best practice considerations that they should make around open source, knowing that there's going to be some good sessions at conference as well. Your, your team has curated some, some really good sessions in this area because we, we do seem to be at a critical state at this point with best practice considerations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the according to Hoyle answer, right, is always going to be that open source by virtue of the source code being available to all is more accessible to testing and inspection and, you know, source code analysis, things of that nature. Um, of course, the practical challenge of that is to go back to the earlier example of Apache, you have one and a half million lines of code. It's going to be the pretty savvy and sophisticated security team that's actually doing line-by-line source code analysis of something like Apache, right? So really, the more practical way to approach it, at least in my opinion, is, number one, to look at the supporting community for a tool that you might be interested in. So there are a lot of really great tools out there, but for whatever reason, they just don't have the community coalesce around them, right? Which can be challenging from a user point of view. Like so, So one thing that I think is useful for folks to look at just as a practical matter, is the health and wellness of the community that supports the tool. So, you know, if if you're looking at a tool that hasn't been updated in four or five years, the last code push was forever ago, it behooves you to look at that one with maybe a little bit more scrutiny than something like Apache, which has a vibrant user base and so on. Um, So that's kind of thing number one. Um, Thing number two is that there's actually some research out there that shows that organizations that actually have an open source program do tend to get more value, better value, easier adoption, better overall support in terms of the open source projects that they bring in. Now, this is from a user point of view. So if you do have an open source program in your company, which, you know, depending on the kind of company and the size of it, you might, it's a really good idea to engage with them because generally speaking, that isn't run out of the security group, right? Usually that's run somewhere else within the broader auspices of the technology organization. Um, So it's advantageous to engage with that to the extent that it exists. If you are an organization that's doing development and you're, you know, considering releasing some of your, you know, tools that you may have developed for an internal purpose um, out to the broader community, um, it can be a great way to give back. It can be a social responsibility uh, kind of angle from a, you know, being a good corporate citizen to, to be able to give some of those tools back. Um, also, quite frankly, it can have certainly a marketing and in some cases a monetary component to it as well in terms of direct value that it can provide. You know, you think about, for example, there are companies out there that, um, you know, are in the security community that have decided that for them, they want to make a subset of the product that they would be selling available as open source um, to the extent that they're really doing that. And that's not like, quote unquote, open source, you know, and that's F-A-U-X, right? Uh, where it's like, <laughs> it looks like open source, but it's not really like the license is, is restricted in some way, or in order to get value out of it, you have to pay somebody money. Um, you know, so long as it really is an, a, an effort that does 
make that code available to others, um, I think there can be a tremendous value there. So, um, yeah, realistically, I, I think it's not rocket science. You know, it's really kind of the same discipline that you would apply in terms of vetting a commercial tool or a cost product that you might use within your organization. The major difference being that you can evaluate the health of the community and you also do have access to the source um, if you do intend to, you know, assess it do some kind of source code analysis, maybe some kind of, uh, you know, source code scanning type of product um, that you want to apply to it as well. Interesting. So as I'm listening to that, and Megan, I'm going to bring the focus back to you now with product security. A lot of those best practice considerations for open source release that you're talking about feel like they also tie right into best practices from a product security standpoint. So, so Megan, how do you ensure, as you're looking at product security, and I know um, you know, ever-expanding connecting supply chain, more and more different things that are connecting, and therefore more and more different things you have to be worried about the security um, posture of, what are some of the issues that developers are grappling with? Maybe it's end-of-life issues, vulnerability, disclosure, um, the exact types of uh, release cycles that, that Ed's talking about. What are you worried about in your mind from a product security standpoint? Sure, and um, thank you, Britta. I want to take a second and, and circle back to the open source uh, conversation that, that Ed was having and that I think that it's interesting from a community standpoint, we can really view open source as a nexus to supply chain management, right? So if we were to break supply chain down into two easy components, it would be purchase supply chain as well as open source. And a little bit of a joke, which is really what I wanted to get here because I, I thought it would be neat for the call, given that the open source discussion is that um, people and developers in particular can view, well, open source is free. This is good. And yes, uh, open source provides tremendous value to our industry. There's no doubt about that. But open source is not exactly free in the sense that we would understand it. Open source is not free as in like a free cup of coffee. Open source is really free as in like a free puppy that requires a lot of of care and feeding and things of that nature. So I thought that that was a cute little kind of wrap up to the open source part of the conversation kind of segueing into supply chain is one of the areas that developers, I'd say, are really uh, focused on solving for in that we are doing a better job of the entire ship left concept when it comes to code that we develop in-house, as well as the addition and the management of the open source code that's being used across industry. I think that companies are becoming more comfortable with secure development lifecycle and open source and that whole management and rhythm with DevSecOps and kind of day-to-day engineering, if you will, and building a product. The things that probably are still keeping developers up at night um, just because we're still very much managing it at a, a program and an industry level is the way that we want to tackle supply chain, right? And so supply chain is the risk of security issues within code that we are inheriting, that we are bringing into our organizations from suppliers, partners, and and any other sources that come to us externally. So with that, I think, that we need to take a few steps back and reevaluate how we view suppliers. Uh, What does the supplier agreement look like for today versus five years ago? What are the conversations that we're having with our suppliers around what does your product security program look like? What are the supplier's requirements for secure development lifecycle? 
Can your suppliers uh, provide you artifacts showing that they are proactively building their code with security in mind and that they're actually running the security scans and they can show you how over time they're also monitoring and reporting on their programs to increasingly improve their overall secure development capability within their development community. So, again, supply chain, I think, is an area that we're still trying to wrap our arms around in maturity. Uh, There's different tactics that we can use. And, again, we're seeing growth and kind of consistent battle rhythms, I'd say, when it comes to the day-to-day coding that's in-house. Indeed. I, I love all the different communities that are involved in cybersecurity as a whole and, and the way that they're represented at conferences. As, as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, we've got this great protecting data and the supply chain ecosystem track as well, and, and I just want to be in every single place all at the same time because there's all this great content that, that you guys as the program committee are bringing to bear. Um, so I have a question for both of you, which also relates to that, you know, that larger community aspect. You know, at conference, we have lawyers, we have privacy experts, we have policy advocates, we have developers, we have CISOs, we have, we have all of the different players from across the ecosystem. And, and as we know, privacy, again, is, is, is a growing drumbeat. CCPA is kicked in a couple of days ago here in California and therefore, you know, across everywhere, anyone that touches a Californian. So, so as we look ahead to conference and beyond, what do you anticipate the community we'll see in terms of the security and privacy needs of software in the future? I think you're going to really start to see security as a market differentiator. Uh, the quality and the perception of how your product is viewed is going to be directly tied to its security and, in essence, its safety, right? In most languages around the world, the word security and safety are synonymous. They're virtually the same word, but they're, they're not in the English language. We differentiate them. But in most of the world, that differentiation is not noted. So what I'm seeing so far is that the community at this point is alert. I see vendors being more responsive to vulnerabilities being reported in their products. I see more partnerships with the research community. I see the shift left concept really taking hold in companies. The premise that foundationally it is better to find and fix security issues earlier in the development cycle because it's better for everyone. It also saves engineering time. A quick stat around this is that I, a vulnerability found during design review costs less than a few hundred dollars to fix versus a vulnerability found in a product that's already fielded in a customer environment. We're talking a, a minimum estimate of 30K there. In, in reality, I think it's actually much higher than that. I think that you're going to see the focus remaining on building out the product security programs unto themselves, which is, you know, different than the IT security work. It's slightly different than day-to-day engineering work. It's a little bit of a blend of both of them. And I think that you're going to see a rise in the number of titles that you see out there for chief product security officers. Many, I'd say most companies today, especially Fortune 500, they all have CISOs, and and that's great. That's been needed. The CISO space has been very matured. It's a very well-networked and integrated uh, community. The CISOs lean on one another. They talk. They have conferences that they attend and they meet up. And it's exciting because in the product security space, you're 
you're seeing that birth of, of an entire industry segment, right, of a leadership segment, of a program segment. And the chief product security officer uh, title, I think it's just one that you're going to see more and more of. And in 10 years' time, we may be having this conversation and we find out that now there's as many chief product security officers out there as there are CISOs, especially if you're making product or shipping product, the product has code in it, you may find yourself in need of a product security program. So if I was a betting woman, that's what I'd say you'd see a rise of. And we're seeing the early stages of that in submissions as well. Good. Okay, Ed, what's in your crystal ball? Well, I love that message about the product security officer. I think that's really interesting, and I think that's probably true. I guess the one thing that I would call out is maybe a little bit more kind of tactical, which is that, and, you know, whether open source or or otherwise, you know, it just strikes me that there's a need for this. If you look at kind of the way that application development is evolving, right, it's all microservice oriented. It's all how do you further and further modularize and break down the development of software into smaller and smaller functional components, right? And you you look at things like containerization, it's facilitated that. You look at things like orchestration, it facilitates that. You look at uh, even service mesh is, you know, kind of a more recent model that helps to further facilitate that. So what's really interesting to me about that is that a lot of the ways that we've kind of analyzed application or software security in the past need to evolve, I think, to perform well in a microservice architecture. Like, so the example that I might point to would be like threat modeling, right? So if you look at like application threat modeling and the way that people normally do that, you know, you kind of look at pretty much any methodology for this and and it's more or less first created data flow type diagram and you map out interaction points between components and then you analyze those interaction points from an attacker point of view and map it against, you know, something like Stride or what have you, which is a great model. and, And I've used that throughout my career, like since I learned about it anyway. Um, but, you know, when you start to map that against a, a service-oriented model, well, what happens when you can't assume that a pathway through a given application is going to always follow the same happy path, right? When when it might be service A is talking to service B today, but it's talking to B, C, and D tomorrow, right? Um, you can't assume that those pathways are going to exist, let alone that they're going to be static. So, um I think there's some innovation that can happen around how we do things like threat modeling. And you you expand this concept more broadly and you start to look at things like component analysis, right? So like what's inside a given piece of code? Um, What does it depend on? Like dependency mapping, understanding what libraries are are being used. Actually, even at some future time, I, I don't know of techniques that support this now, but even being able to identify whether from a, a binary or, or from source code, whether there's cutting and pasting that's happened from other components or, you know, from open source tools that exist already or, you know, just from somebody's GitHub that somebody randomly stumbled across, right? In my opinion, I think the microservices really kind of changed the game in terms of, you know, how we need to approach software security or application security. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it just strikes me that, um, I think there's room for more more tooling around this and, and standardization and process around it. Excellent. Well, lots of passion and lots of great content ahead for developers um, at RSA Conference and opportunity to, to share, to um, inform each other best practices, challenges they've faced and such. Thank you both so much for being here on this podcast. 
and also for the larger work in and around your your leadership, um, really you know bringing two awesome new tracks to bear this year at RSA Conference. Uh, listeners, we look forward to seeing many of you in San Francisco in a couple of short weeks, and please do check out the great content offerings in and around um, open source as well as product security. Thank you. Thank you. 